Our Bible reading this morning is taken from um, Psalm 88, and we'll read the whole of that psalm. Psalm 88. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near to the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me, your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You've taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you speak to us in the good times and in the difficult times. And Father, we pray that as we reflect on these words this morning, that you would speak uh, to our hearts. Lord, speak especially to those of us who are in despair and encourage uh, us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, some nights uh, are darker than others, aren't they? Uh, When the moon is out or you're walking along uh, the street of a city and uh, the lights are on uh, in the street, it's, it's not that dark, is it? Some, some nights you could uh, well and truly go places, see your way uh, when, it's, uh, when it's in the middle of the night. But some nights are quite dark. If it's overcast or if there's no moon, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, then you can barely see to get to the letterbox. Uh, <laughs> some nights I forget to get the mail and I have to go down the driveway uh, and it's almost pitch black uh, where I am. Uh, when, it's, when it's overcast and the moon isn't out. There's no light by which we can see anything. We can, can't even see the, the, the shapes and the outlines of the things that are there. And what's true of uh, dark nights in life uh, is true of dark nights of the soul as well. Uh, there are some nights in people's experience that are darker than others. Uh, there are hard times and then there are the times that actually seem almost impossible. There are times of sadness and discouragement, and then there are times of absolute despair. Psalm 88 is unique, actually, in the book of Psalms. Uh, Pretty much all of the Psalms, even if they start out kind of desperate and depressed, 
they all pick up toward the end. Even if the circumstances of the person who's writing them, even if their circumstances don't improve, the tone of the psalm does improve. At the end, they kind of say to themselves something like, but I'm going to trust in you, God. Things are hard at the moment, but I'm going to rely on you, and I know that at the end of the day, uh, you will do good by me. But in Psalm 88, it doesn't end well. It's the only psalm like that. It ends with these words, darkness is my closest friend. It could be the, the album title for an emo band, uh, Darkness is my closest friend. Uh, but if you actually heard somebody say that, you'd be justifiably worried about them, I think, wouldn't you? Uh, if the writer of Psalm 42, which we looked at last week, if that person could be diagnosed as suffering from depression, then the writer of Psalm 88 would probably be d- diagnosed as suicidal. That's how bleak this psalm is. We live in a world where suicide is disturbingly frequent, and many of us undoubtedly have been touched by that. by friends who've taken their lives or colleagues or family members. And suicide is not absent from the church. It's not out there, but suicide is in here as well. And although this psalm is not about suicide, it is about the emotion, I think, which leads there. That is despair. It's about that emotion that feeling when you get to the end of yourself and you think, I can't do this anymore, I can't go on, there's, there's nothing left. And many people who may never take their own life can still end up feeling that way, feeling at an end of themselves. And many of us in our lives will get to a point like that. And so this psalm helps us, it's a very important psalm, this psalm helps us to make sense of those times, helps us to make some semblance of sense of those times. It helps us to think through what do we do when we've got nothing left? What do we do when life is bitter and empty and God seems far away? How do we deal with that? This psalm helps us to know. Well, the first point that I think needs to be made is that despair is not outside the realm of Christian experience. The writer of this psalm is a man named Heman the Ezraite. I love it that his name is He-Man because his life is falling to pieces. Uh, The irony, this man is not a master of the universe, this man is falling to pieces, he has nothing left. And his description of his circumstances are terribly bleak. Verse 3, My soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who die in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. He feels like a dead man. He feels cut off from God and cut off from God's care. At the end, he goes on to say in verse 15, From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Verse 16, 
This experience of being a dead man walking is not a new thing for Heman. That has been his experience, he says, for a lifetime. From my youth I have been afflicted, he says. God's wrath has swept over him, the terror of God has destroyed him. Now that might be how you feel. Uh, you might feel like you're living a living death. Full of so much sorrow and so much pain. And every day that you wake up you don't know how, that, how you'll survive the day. You don't even know whether you want to survive. I think that's the most desperate, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing, isn't it? To not know whether you can survive, I think despair is when you don't know whether you want to survive. Your pain has been going on for so long, year after year after year, and you wonder when it will be the end. You're engulfed by misery, flooded by pain, and drowning in sorrow. Worst of all, though, you feel forgotten by God. You cry out, but he never hears. You ask for help, but it never comes. You feel cut off from God's care. It's not that you don't believe that God can be kind. You do believe that God can be kind. It's just that you don't think that he'll be kind to you. When you cry out to God, you feel wrath, not mercy, and terror, not love. You know that God is supposed to be your closest friend, but actually... Darkness is your closest friend. Emptiness, despair. William Cooper, the great hymn writer, was a man whose life was like that. His life was often spent in bitter sadness and despair. He was converted when he was about 30. He was converted in an insane asylum that he'd been committed to. And one of the people who was working there was an evangelical Christian and he shared the gospel with him. He'd leave the Bible lying around the place for William to pick up. And William did, and he, and he came to saving faith. Uh, he'd already suffered numerous bouts of depression, and he tried to commit suicide numerous times. That's why he was in the insane asylum. But unfortunately, his discovery of the gospel didn't solve the problems of his life. Uh, periodically, his despair would return, and even as a Christian, he tried to take his life numerous times, but was rescued mercifully by God's uh, intervention. But like the writer of this psalm, the dominant note of Cooper's life was not just sadness, but despair, hopelessness. Cooper believed in God. He believed all the biblical truths about God. He believed that God was doing miraculous things in the revival that was happening at that time under people like George Whitfield. He believed that God was saving people uh, to himself. But while he believed all that, he also despaired that he was condemned by God and beyond the grace of God. John Piper, in his talk on Cooper, recounts how Cooper lived with this family and every night they would sit down for their meal and they would pray and Cooper would sit there with the knife and fork in his hand and his eyes open while the family prayed. Why? Not because he didn't believe in God. He did believe in God. But because he thought that God was against him and that God's salvation was for everybody but him. 
that somehow he stood condemned. A month before he died, he confessed to his doctor, saying, I feel unutterable despair. If you feel like William Cooper did, uh, or like the writer of this psalm did, although this may be a small consolation, please realise that you are not alone. Please realise that despair is a valid Christian experience. That you're not the first Christian to feel like that, and you're not the last one either. Here in this psalm, God has given you words to express what you're feeling. And here in this psalm, on the lips of another one of God's own people, there is that kind of dark, bleak, desperate language that describes what you're going through. And in fact, these words are not just on the lips of one of God's own people, but they've been composed, written for the director of music and compiled in God's songbook. Here among the precious songs of God's people is a song that describes the experience, the Christian experience of unutterable despair. It's so important, I think, for us to acknowledge that despair is not outside the realm of Christian experience. Fewer things are more unhelpful than the idea that despair is somehow shameful in the Christian life. David Murray uh, is an American pastor and theologian and a few years ago he wrote a book called Christians Get Depressed Too. He wrote it because he found that so many people thought that Christians shouldn't be like that, couldn't be like that. It's in fact another form of the prosperity gospel uh, which we face which promises that if you trust Jesus everything will be wonderful. Trees of green, red roses. But the Christian life is not always like that. It can be like that. The Christian life can be wonderful. And what a gift it is when life is like that. And we should, Psalms like this should remind us to be thankful for the good times. But it's, life is not always like that. The saviour that we follow is a saviour who went to the cross a saviour who endured despair. And so it is, I think, that sometimes in the Christian life there are times when there's no praise, there's very little sense of hope, there's just bitterness uh, and sadness. So that's the first thing, I think, is that despair can be part of the Christian experience. It's important that we acknowledge that uh, and recognise that. Uh, It's also important, I think, to acknowledge that most of us, well, all of us, don't, if we're there, we don't want to stay there. So how do we deal with that then, if that's where we are? How do we deal with despair, or how do we help those around us deal with uh, despair, if that's where they are? Well, this psalm says a few things, I think, that help us. And the first thing that we see which can help us is we see Heman bringing his complaint to God. He blames God for his predicament. Look at verse 6. He says, "'You have put me in the lowest pit.'" In the darkest depths, your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. 
the language here of this psalm is similar to the language of the book of Job. Uh, Both of them complain to God. Both of them, in some sense, accuse God. Job, for instance, talks about God shooting poison arrows at him. Both Job and this writer, they complain to God about their present circumstances and they blame God for their present circumstances. And there is, of course, a sense in which the accusation is true, isn't there? It was God who made him draw near the gates of death. And God had at least allowed this person's eyes to grow dim with sorrow. God had allowed that to happen and hadn't done anything about it. But these kinds of words raise for us an important question, I think. Is it right for us to complain to God? Is it right for us to blame God, to accuse God, to say, God, you've done this to me? A friend of mine uh, published a commentary on Job last year, and in it he, he discusses this question. And he says some very helpful things, I think. He says, he writes, the book, that is the book of Job, affirms that the honest pouring out to God of our deepest hurts, our raw emotions, even our strongest accusations, is an appropriate way to channel our pain. It is always appropriate to be honest before the God who knows and sustains all things. God will never be blown away by the strength of our language. He goes on to say, we need to recover that sense of bold honest faith that moves from a questioning of God's ways through to a settled and deep conviction that he is a God who is for us. That is, complaint and and the strong language of of this psalm and of Job and things like that is, is a crucial way in which we work out our relationship with God. Or to say it another way, we're better off wrestling with God through our hard and honest questions, we're better off wrestling with God through those things than we are in abandoning God. We're better off to say, God, you've done this to me. Why have you done this? We're better off saying that to God than saying, that's it. I'm going somewhere else. In fact, I think many people don't ever do that. They don't ever come to God and say, God, I don't know what you're doing. They just give up. This psalm teaches us to come to God with those questions. So what might it look like for us to recover that sense of uh, bold faith? Well, it might look like saying to God, God, you promised that you would build your church. Why aren't you doing that? Why hasn't anyone been converted into our church? We've been evangelising for years. And how many conversions have we seen? A handful. You promised that you'd do it. Why aren't you doing it? Or it might mean saying to God, God, I know that you never promised to make me healthy this side of eternity. But you did promise to love me. But the pain of my existence means that I'm beginning to doubt that. I'm beginning to doubt that you really do love me. You could stop this agony that I'm facing in a moment. Just like that. But you haven't. How can I trust that you're a good God? 
This psalm reminds us that we're better off speaking to God in complete honesty than we are not speaking to God or pretending that things are okay when they're not. So despair is a, a part of the Christian experience and one of the ways we deal with that is by bringing our complaints to God. Next, Heman reasons with God. Uh, he, he reasons and argues with God and he uses what is an unusual but actually an incredibly powerful argument for why God should save him. So he says in verse 10, Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? What Heman is saying is, what purpose is there in my destruction? Do the dead rise up and praise you? No, but I praise you. So why would you destroy me? Is your love declared in the grave? No, it isn't. But I declare your love. Even in my utter despair, I'm telling people about your love. So why would you end that? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? No, but I know them. Why would you send me to death and to hell to stop me from praising you and telling people of your wonders and your love? Why would you do that? And the answer, of course, is that God wouldn't. He's basically saying to God, you can't destroy me because I love you. It's a remarkable argument, isn't it? He maybe doesn't love God as much as he should. That's not the point. The point is that he loves God. God is not in the business of snuffing out the lives of people who honour him and who love him. This isn't an argument which goes, God, I'm good, I deserve for you to save me. That's not what he's saying. Rather, this person has experienced the power of God and the love of God. God has drawn this person to him. He's rescued him. He's saved him. He's changed him. God has redirected this person's life. He's put his praise on this man's lips. God has put his love in this man's heart. And God is not in the business of beginning a good work like that and then not ending it, not carrying it through to completion. Jesus says that whoever comes to him, he will not drive away. If we come to him, we don't need to fear that he will say, no, 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 look, If someone else had come, I would have said yes, but not for you. That was William Cooper's view, wasn't it? Everyone but me. But when we see the marks of God's grace in our lives, we can know that what God has begun, he will finish. I think it's one of the most powerful encouragements for people who despair of God's love. God, God, I love you. You can't destroy me. When despite the despair, the praise of God is on our lips, and when despite the despair, we see our lives changing slowly day by day, when despite the despair, we find our love for God growing and not shrinking, When despite the despair, we find ourselves mysteriously clinging to God, still yet day after day. 
when despite the despair we see those gifts of God's grace, we can have confidence that our despair is misplaced. Those are works of the Spirit and they are are a deposit guaranteeing an eternal inheritance. So despair is part of the Christian experience. We deal with that, first of all, by complaining to God. We deal with it by reasoning with God. Uh, And finally, even though the night is utterly black, even though he can't see, even though he's thoroughly confused, Heman does one more thing, and that is he keeps crying out to God. As one person has pointed out, even though this is a desperate prayer, it is still a prayer. He can't see anything. He doesn't know where he's going, but he can still call out. And God can still hear him. He says in verse 1, O Lord, the God who saves me, he knows that God can do it. Day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Or the second half of verse 9, I call to you, O Lord. Every day I spread out my hands to you. Or verse 13, 13, but I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? It might be slightly disappointing to discover that the remedy for despair is the same remedy as for all the other dark nights of the soul. That is, crying out to God. That's the remedy. But it shouldn't surprise us as well because it's the same God that we're dealing with. And in a sense, what else is there that we can do? The reason we cry out to God is because God is the only one who actually has the power to do anything about our predicament. The only one who can reach in in those dark nights and and drag us out. If suffering leads us to turn away from God, then we're lost. If that's our response, if if we turn away from God, there's there's no hope. But if we cling on to God, then our rescue is assured. As Job said when he was labouring under unimaginable suffering, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. God can do all kinds of things. God can let all kinds of evil happen in my life, says Job. And though he slay me, I'm going to keep trusting in him because there's nothing else that I can do. We sang those words earlier, didn't we? Uh, Those words of Peter. Where else have we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's not a kind of a consolation prize. Oh well, there's nowhere else to go. I guess I'll stick with Jesus. No, Peter's saying, there is nowhere else to go. Only you have words of eternal life. Only your words can pierce the darkness. Only your power can raise me from the dead. And even though you might be in the depths of despair, please remember that Jesus has words of eternal life for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And although no one else may know what you're going through, Jesus does. He was despised and rejected, 
a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, one from whom men hide their faces. He was cut off, cut off from life, cut off from God. He endured the ultimate suffering, suffering worse than any person in human history has ever suffered or will suffer. God's wrath swept over him so that if we hold on to him, it will never sweep over us. But unlike this psalm, the psalm of Jesus' life didn't end in despair. Jesus' life wrote the words missing from the end of Psalm 88. The hope that this writer couldn't see. Jesus experienced the darkest blackness, but he triumphed. He came out the other side. He rose triumphant from the grave. And if you call out to Jesus, he can not only understand what you're going through, but he can rescue you from it. He can take you by the hand and lead you into glory. There's no guarantee that the path that he takes you along will be a smooth path, There might be rocks and cliffs and thorns. But he will take you by the hand and he'll drag you through into the presence of his almighty father. There's lots of questions that we can't answer and there's lots of things that we don't know. And it can be very, very hard living in the dark and desperate situation of crying out to God and seeing no answer. But we do know that God loves us very, very much. We see that in the cross. God must love us a great deal. And we know that God is powerful. We see that in the resurrection. Whatever befalls us, God is more powerful than it. Knowing that might not cause the sun to rise on our darkness today, but the more we meditate on that, the more it becomes a faint glimmer just over the horizon that begins slowly, slowly to pierce the darkness and to shed light into our dark night of despair. I want to finish uh, this morning by reading uh, a condensed version of some of the end of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It describes the last journey of Christian and his friend Hopeful uh, to the Eternal City. Uh, And in it, John Bunyan uses the words of this psalm uh, and he paints for us a picture in metaphors of some of the trials of the Christian life, uh, but also of its ultimate glory. Uh, It's quite long uh, and the language is quite old, but it's one of the best things ever put into print and I think it's a tremendously helpful encouragement uh, for those who are suffering from despair. Now I further saw that betwixt them and the gate was a river. But there was no bridge to go over and the river was very deep. At the sight therefore of this river the pilgrims were much stunned. But the men that went with them said you must go through or you cannot come at the gate. Then they addressed themselves to the water and entering Christian began to sink 
And crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters, the billows go over my head, all his waves go over me. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother, I feel the bottom and it is good. Then said Christian, ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. Hopeful, therefore, had much to do to keep his brother's head above water. Yea, sometimes he would be quite gone down, and then, ere a while, he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful did also endeavour to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate, and men standing by to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you, it is you they wait for, for you have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, said he, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. Then said Hopeful, my brother, these troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you, but are sent to try you whether you will call to mind that which you have received of his goodness and whether you will live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw that Christian was in a muse a while, to whom also Hopeful added these words, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian broke out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again! And he tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon, and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow, and thus they got over. Now while they were thus drawing towards the gate, behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them. To whom it was said by the other two shining ones, These are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world, and they have left all for his holy name, and he hath sent us to fetch them, and we have brought them thus far on their desired journey, that they may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy. This done, they compassed them round on every side. Some went before, some behind, and some on the right, and some on the left continually sounding as they went with melodious noise in notes on high so that the very sight was to them that could behold it as if heaven itself was come down to meet them. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy and it was said unto them, Enter ye into the joy of your Lord. If you're suffering in the dark night of despair, Brother or sister, take courage. You are not far from home. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so wise and so compassionate that you should put into your word, into the songs of your people, words which describe the darkest nights that we experience 
Words that describe the bleakest times of life. Words that describe that unutterable despair that from time to time floods over us. Words that, despair, words that describe the despair when we feel cut off from you. Cut off from your goodness. Cut off from your salvation. Words that describe that feeling, Lord, when we think that everyone else is welcome to your grace and your kindness and your mercy but us. And Lord, if there are those among us this morning who feel like that at present, Lord, we ask that you would draw near to them and comfort them. Lord, help us to be an encouragement to them. Help us to walk patiently beside them. Help us to direct them again to you and your grace and your mercy. Help us to cry out with them, Why, O oh Lord, why? And how long, O oh Lord, how long? And Lord, we pray too that these words would prepare us, those of us who are in good times, that these words would prepare us for difficult times ahead, that when they come, we would not despair and abandon you, but that we would cry out and eventually receive your mercy and your grace. Lord, set before us our Saviour, who endured all these things and won, and unite us with him in his victory, and not merely his suffering. For we ask it in Jesus, for Jesus' sake. Amen.